Welcome back to another episode of the Crypto Classroom. It's your boy, JT Knows Things, and my co-host, Steve Wolterman. This podcast is for you. We are hedge fund managers. We own and operate a fund out of Cincinnati, Ohio called Bleeding Edge Capital. We raise money and deploy it into the crypto space. And we made this podcast to teach you the fundamentals that have made us successful in this space. We are discretionary long and value investors. So if you've been looking for a podcast that explains the technology simply and helps you understand the timeframes and the expectations that you should have when you're in this space and you're looking for a, a place of very robust information and a calm energy. We want you to understand the the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows of this market can cause a lot of emotional decision making, which is not ideal. So we want you to understand the fundamentals. We want you to follow the number one rule in investing. Okay, that is to understand your investment. So. Sit down, get out a notepad, get a pen ready, and learn alongside Steve as I teach him basic technological principles of why we love blockchain, crypto, everything computer science as it pertains to this industry. Thank you for tuning in. Let's get right to it. Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of Crypto Classroom. I am Jake Tallis. I am the fund manager of Leading Edge Capital. And I first got started into crypto in 2017 when I uh, was really frustrated with the SWIFT system and, and wiring money internationally. And I heard about this thing called XRP and uh, never really looked back since. And with me, I have my co-host, Steve. Hi, I'm Steve Walterman. Uh, I'm actually an attorney, not a, a crypto buff, but an attorney of a small law firm. Um, got a background in tax, do a general business law, do a lot of uh, real estate 1031 tax deferred exchanges. You might ask, why am I here? Uh, one of the kind of purpose of this podcast, uh, I met Jake about a year ago and, you know, over a course of a few conversations was just captivated with his knowledge about uh, crypto and, and Web three, and just realized how little I knew about it. You know, uh, you know, I think a, you know, well enough educated person. You know, see a lot. You know, sophisticated uh, things in my practice, but just didn't understand anything about crypto. And you know, here we are. I, I think that we have a chance in this podcast. There's probably a lot of people out there like me, middle aged guys, women who you know feel like they don't want to miss out and they want to understand, but you know, what, what questions to ask. So we'll uh, give that a shot here. So. Awesome. So yeah. what's on the, what's on the docket today? Well, I being our first podcast, you know, I thought we would start uh, with some real basic stuff. Um, you know, as, as we've talked kind of early when you were explaining things to me, um, you know, there's this concept that we have, you know, web two and we're moving into web three. And, you know, maybe you could comment a little bit on what's the, the single biggest, you know, are there some real core technological advances, uh, for instance, like the blockchain technology, uh, you know, when everybody hears uh, when we're talking about crypto, you know, is that is that one of the biggest, you know, advancements and developments and, and maybe kind of take us from a real high view 
as we kind of ease into this. Yeah, I like that. So I think first, if we're going to start trying to understand what a blockchain is, I think we need to understand what the traditional idea of a network is, right? So Web 2 to Web 3 is... It's just as important to understand where we're going, where we're at today versus like where we've been the past 50, 60 years. So I think the start, I'm going to explain what, you know, the first iteration really is. And, and it's what we're all accustomed to. You probably haven't put a lot of thought into it. So um, first iteration being if there's Web 3 we're moving into from Web 2, you know, the 90s, 2000s, we're, we're talking about Web 1. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Actually, yeah, we could go all the way back to Web 1. Web 1 was really just this exchange of information. It would have been like as soon as the Internet became commercially available, that was that's what dot com means. Some people don't know that dot com literally means commercial use of the Internet. And the Internet is a public service that the government worked on uh, from 1954 until 1989. They started contracting private entities like Oracle and um, it would have been IBM back in the day to do kind of Department of Defense work to build out this thing called ARPANET, which is the very first iteration of the Internet. Um, once ARPANET was kind of figured out and we, we created these things called databases and servers and all that stuff, uh, 1989 came around, the very first web point, you know, one Web point, oh, 1.0, sorry, it's literally this morning, uh, was kind of commercially available. And all we really did with it was put text out there, static sites. Like if you can think back to the early 90s, all it was was websites with basic information. And that's what the internet was until the advent of social media. That is Web 2. When the internet transitioned from just a I would call it a town square of information into a social paradigm where if you don't use the internet in your day-to-day -day life, you're at a disadvantage now because you don't have that social notoriety, which can be monetized and everything else. Marketing is a lot different. That's all web two. And then web three talks about the, the integration of value on the internet now. I know that's like a very complex thing uh -huh. that we get into, but that would be the third transition. So now we have, we went from information to our kind of social uh, place in the world. And now it's also going to be where we store all of our value because it's just, I guess, the natural order of things. Um, and if that's something, you know, I know I've had people ask, you know, do, do you have to go somewhere else online to access Web3? Does it exist like in a different you know. Yeah, that's that's a great question. So no, um, the URLs are the same as as a website. You wouldn't even know in the future when this stuff is fully adopted. You wouldn't even know the difference. Mm -hmm. um, you wouldn't know the difference between online and on chain. The experience would be seamless. Uh, we're not there yet. A lot of development needs to happen in the space for us to get there. But that would be the ultimate kind of experience for a user in the future. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, a big part of, of what separates Web 2 to Web 3 and how we get value on the Internet is, is definitely understanding blockchain. So you have in Web 1 and Web 2, you basically have this idea of a network. A network is just 
a um, a collective group of participants. It could be a computer. It could be you know humans. Doesn't particularly matter. A network is just as it describes. It's a you know a net of different things working together and communicating. In the sense of blockchain, it's specific to computers and. In this network, traditionally in Web2, we had the development of these big companies, these massive conglomerates like Meta and um, Twitter, Facebook, you get it. And uh, Amazon, like it's all, that's called a monolithic structure where it's just a centralized entity that owns the consuming application or just like the the thing you interact with, amazon.com, for example. And then they own the servers that all of your inputs get stored into. So when you click buy or, you know, you create a shopping list on Amazon, whatever it is, they store all that information. They own it. It's tied to your email account that they own it. So when I log on to Amazon into my account, I'm essentially entering an Amazon network. It's controlled out by them. They have all the information. They keep all the information about my habits and, that's a monolithic yeah yeah that's exactly it steve so they own all of it they own them servers they then take it back to more servers and there's usually a a large chain of computers in this kind of monolithic structure just a vertical slice of a network and there there's a few inherent issues that we've just accepted with that structure in, in modern day one being we just accept the fact that if you violate terms of service, let's say, it is totally in their right to get rid of your account, all of your order history, and block you from ever using their service again because it is their private property. In Web2, we accept that. You can see that being more and more controversial over time. You know, people getting canceled, canceled culture. That's a that's a big social movement we're going through right now. And it's purely because of this monolithic structure. In Web3, everything's decentralized and not one individual has a say over your user account, your credentials or anything else. Um, To understand how it works, we gotta get there though. So in this monolithic structure in Web2, they own the entire stack, meaning the consuming app or the, the website, the servers, they own all the fields you give them, all the data you give them, they own everything. That's called a stack and they own it all. In Web3, what we've transitioned to is a really cool space where there's financial incentive to participate in the network that keeps all the bad actors at bay, which would allow us to basically break down this monolithic structure and create a distributed network, which theoretically, since the founding of computer science has been the ideal state of technology. You can do a lot more with distributed computing platforms than you can with monolithic structures. Uh, overall, though, what, what allows us to do this is it's, it's, it's threefold, really. You have security, so that's encryption. Uh, for the people listening, Encryption is a really, really smart, fancy way to say passwords and just security in general. If you think of encryption, just think of, you know, you got to type in your 16 character password to log into your email. Um, And then it's also that financial incentive part. 
So just to give you guys an example here, Bitcoin. Um, in Bitcoin, for you to participate in the network, you need to own Bitcoin. And your financial success related to that Bitcoin holding is directly attached to your behavior on that network. So if you buy some Bitcoin, then you buy a miner, let's say, and that's just a computer on the network for now. We can get into what mining is in a second, but let's just envision just a computer. And you start mining it and you try to do something poor. You try to approve a transaction that is not credible or you try to be a bad actor. One, you need to get consensus from all these other computers as well. So unless you own 51% of every computer on that network, which by the way, is in the millions. So it's not likely. If, and if that's a monolithic structure, what, what else is there? Where, where are we headed? Got it. So the, the next iteration of these network structures would be a distributed computing platform or a decentralized network. Another word for monolithic structure could be centralized structure. They're pretty much synonymous. Um, the next iteration, distributed or decentralized, just means instead of one entity or one individual owning the entire stack or you know the consuming application, the servers yeah. and the data, uh, we have a community of participants owning the stack and everyone having their own kind of role in that network. Okay. So when you say that, you know, I mean, back to Amazon and this monolithic structure, you know, I also see that as Jeff Bezos, you know, at top, yeah. um, you know, owns the majority of Amazon. You know, can, can you give us an example? Uh, and, and I promise we will get to blockchain, but an example of you know a company right now or you know i understand we're not always considering companies or you know a project or an asset you know how is that owned uh when it's not monolithic when it's not centralized and and when you're saying distributed i mean we're, we're talking all of these people and network together peer-to-peer -peer. yes so not logging on to you know amazon's network but yeah absolutely so um there's it's it's interesting so to solve for that question there's a lot of different projects and they've all figured out an example of a uh, distributed network would be bitcoin um another example would be ethereum and then there's there's quite a lot and each network kind of has went around that problem of you know how do we avoid bad bad actors and how do we incentivize good behavior and there's a lot of different ways that these projects have uh solved those issues um primarily the the, the chief or the number one thing that keeps people from behaving poorly because you got to remember this is peer to peer and it's anonymous. So, I mean, I'm talking some random person in Guatemala could be contributing just as much, if not more than someone in America. Um, 
and you don't know who that is. They're just random numbers represented by a wallet. So the the biggest way we avoid this is, is having your net worth or your financial stability tied directly to your participation in the network. A good example would be like, if you um, put you know, $1,000, let's say, into your kid going to school, but then you could get fined every time uh, you showed up with an attitude to a parent-teacher conference, let's say, right? You're probably going to show up on your best behavior if the fine was substantial. Um, in Ethereum, that, that happens all the same. If you behave poorly as a validator, you could get your entire Ether wiped by the network. And the really cool thing about it is there's no opinions there. Uh-huh. It's all enforced by code. So I feel like we will need to get into, you know, the role of a validator. The guy myself, you know, I own some ETH. I'm certainly not validating anything when you even know where to begin. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure what my participation is. You know, I own Bitcoin. I don't, you know, am I participating? In any sense, you know, I just own someone in exchange and, you know, I'm hoping for the appreciation of it. Well, when you picked up that Bitcoin, what did you do? I put U.S. currency, deposited that into Coinbase in this case, and then, you know, when bought when I thought the price was good. Yeah. And continue to accumulate and I just hold it. So when you exchanged your fiat, that dirty US dollar for some Bitcoin, you locked that value on that network, increasing its market capitalization and making it a more credible network in the sense because it is securing more value. And that's really the theme behind Web 2 and Web 3 with this moving value to the internet. You know, the Internet of Value is, is the third iteration. So you're participating from that standpoint, but there are different levels of participation. If you were to decide to get an ASIC is what it's called, but it's basically just a computer uh, that you would use for your video games or something, um, and decide to start mining Bitcoin, you would play a completely different role mm-hmm. in that network. Sure. Well, before we go down too many rabbit holes uh you know we said we wanted to talk about uh blockchain you know what is what is blockchain why why does it excite you know someone like you um and then you know why should we be looking forward to this in the future blockchain that's a great question i mean blockchain is this it's almost like magic in a sense if you could imagine, if I, if I were to pitch you back in, let's say, 2009, that in, you know, 14 years, you're going to be able to trust a complete stranger halfway across the world to approve, you know, um, a transaction that you're making with, uh, let's just say, your, your buddies out at a bar. And you are going to 
do it quicker than Venmo, or Venmo didn't even exist back then. You're, I mean, you're basically going to be so basically the scenarios I'm trying to transfer money to someone. Yeah, you're trying to transfer money to someone, and then you have a community of strangers across the world uh, creating their the you know the payment rails for all everything. They're supporting all the activity that that transaction incurs uh, seamlessly, all within inside of half a second. I feel like. You would think it's sci-fi or something, really, um, because of the whole. Why? Why are there strangers supporting this network? What? What's? What's their? You know, incentive, and then how is that faster, better, et cetera, than what we have now? And um, to be honest, the only thing that's really allowed this to be so successful is how strong our hardware has gotten over time. You know, back in two thousand nine, our phones were you know, abysmal compared to today. This idea of having a distributed computing platform where there's all these different computers across the world contributing, it's because the cost of that hardware is so small now. You know, only Amazon back in the day or a company uh, similar could afford that structure. They got to raise money or they got to put 10 million into mm -hmm. supporting 100,000 users, let's say. Yeah. But now, one of the most sophisticated Computers we have are in our pockets everywhere. Um, the chips and, and the storage and everything else in those phones could are so way cheaper. And everybody brings around hardware to the exactly. game. And yeah, interesting how it changes the uh, cost structure. But uh, so, so back to, you know, I'm trying to transfer money. You know, I use Venmo. Uh, it appears to me to be safe. I've never had a problem uh, that I'm aware of. Why? Why leave this to strangers all around the world to help me transfer this money? What what makes that safer? What makes that faster? Well, you don't mind using Venmo in that comparative analysis because you're in good standing with Mr. Bezos, right? Um, or whoever owns PayPal, actually, I, because PayPal owns Venmo. But either way... My, my point is, you know, it's fine and good until you violate a term of service mm -hmm. or, um, you know, they cease your account because you transferred too much money to your wife and they don't they think it's a taxable event or uh, a multitude of other things that could, you know, disparage your, you know, your situation that you're trying to pay for. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like that's happened to me. At least I, I have a power washing business and. PayPal, this is a problem I've just been dealing with. You know, they withhold deposits without your consent. You agree to this in the terms of service. They withhold the deposits for um, a very inconvenient period of time that has no end date because they want to protect the customer from refunds and things like that. Mm -hmm. Some form of redemptive ability. But to the business owner, I've had to take short loans or just contribute more of my capital waiting for that money to clear and it's a super inconvenient thing and it, and it feels close to you know a dictatorship or communism so it sounds like you know on the distributed network you know doing this transaction it's just there's really not a centralized body controlling it you know policing it but you know back to is it safer is it safer is it faster you know what, what are the advantages of you know Security, yeah, safety. So not only do you have that that liberty in mm -hmm. this in this network, but also 
in computer science where the majority of um, vulnerabilities exist, so like how hacks occur and things like that, it's in the transmission of messaging between computers. So in that monolithic structure, when I put buy, let's say I place my order, and there's that lag for that order to go through, what's happening on a technical level is you built out an order that is a, just a file that then gets sent to a server. In that transmission period, there is no protection. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're just sending it right there. And if someone was to, if someone was able to get in front of the API that that stands in front of the computer, so if they were to just intersect it, right, get right in front of it, they would be able to extract all of that what, what information. Sorry, it's an application programming interface. Okay. Uh, that's what the acronym stands for. But it's basically just a bucket of code. We could think of it as a bucket of code that is traffic cop to messages between systems, let's say. This goes here, this goes there, yeah, things like that. And they're always stood up in between computers in a monolithic structure um, because one server could be handling, let's say, 10,000 files at a time, right? So it needs to know which server goes where, and it's just a way to optimize storage and things like that. Right. So in a distributed computing platform, it's very interesting, like a blockchain specifically, that's what we're talking about here. A block is a period of time where that transmission is allowed. Uh, the time that that block is open is called a time to finality. When that block closes, it is 128-bit encrypted. So in a monolithic structure, uh, the website sends a message to the server in this distributed platform or blockchain, you have the same exact thing. Let's say I'm just sending money to um, you and all that activity and, and, and just our transaction, but literally every transaction on the network inside of this block time. And that's running 24 seven, 365. Every 15 seconds, a Bitcoin block is open. Then there's an order of transactions inside of those 15 seconds. And then our transaction enters a queue. And then all of those computers work together to work through those transactions submitted in that block after the block is closed. And then once those transactions are completed, they get posted onto a, a ledger. That's the next part of the blockchain to understand. But, and we'll get into that in a second. So the real difference is in those 15 seconds, it's vulnerable, but after that, it is encrypted till the ends of time. And as long as that network is still functional, it cannot be messed with. It's immutable. It, it is not, uh, you cannot play with it. So the transmission is completely secure. And the only way to attack a block is to have 51% of the computers of that network in that time of finality, which is like, a lot of computers. Yeah. I mean, how many? I'm sure it depends on the. Yeah, I mean, what what, what blockchain? But that's the cool thing about these, you know, these these platforms. They um, the more computers, the more secure, the faster. And that's why, since the beginning of time, you know, distributed computing has always theoretically been better. 
the more nodes you have on a network, the more secure it becomes and the more valuable it becomes. So is there something different than, you know, back to like the Venmo, you know, you know, because I could log in and I could see my history, mm -hmm. you know, a ledger of some sort, you know, in my mind. Correct. Yeah. Um, I certainly can't see anybody else's transactions. Nor can they see yours. Nor can they see mine. Uh, but in this distributed network and on the blockchain, that I think correct is open for everybody to see and go back. And so there's a, yeah. a real record, a real transparency. And it's anonymous. A lot of people might be scared. Yeah, by yeah that. it is anonymous because yeah. nobody would want the entire world to see what we're buying, you know, what we're looking at. Amen. Who does? Right. right. You're anonymized by your wallet ID. Mm -hmm. So just a number. it's just a random string of text and numbers. So like A, B, 0, 6, X, 5, C, 3. I mean, that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Then that wallet logs every single transaction that it ever does on that network. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, available to anyone with an internet connection. The benefits of that, it goes back to these bad actors. If that wallet does anything that is scrupulous at all, we all know instantly. Uh, it brings a next level of transparency that is, is profound in our world. You can look at FTX, for example. Who decides that somebody's a bad actor? The basically the in, in bitcoins, if we're going to stick to this example, the only bad act you can commit is approving a false transaction or a transaction that is um, you know, it doesn't meet the criterion of what a transaction would be. And you would need 51% of the network. The 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 scariest part about Bitcoin, really. That's scary. Yeah. I'm not quite grasping that so okay you know i'm kind of back to what you know i'm, I'm trying to do a transaction let's say that i want to use some bitcoin to buy something okay um i'm going to click the buttons on the computer you know pay with my bitcoin so i'm starting a transaction yep right who like if i'm buying something Illegal. Does that make me a bad actor? Are we talking about? I see. Or, you know, because I certainly don't have the ability to. Right. You know, um, a bad actor. That's a great. So, just to interject there, I mean, let's say that the spot price of Bitcoin at the time of this recording is like twenty eight point uh, eight k. Mm -hmm. uh, a bad transaction could be me buying ten Bitcoin for a dollar today, right now. Good for you. Great for me if yeah. I could figure that out, right? Or reward myself 50 Bitcoin for one block, which is, you know, probably one millionth times what the reward is right now, right? So not you and I or anyone else could do something like that because we would need billions of dollars of, of computers to allow for that to happen. 51% of the entire network. The, the, the biggest vulnerability of Bitcoin really is if all these big mining companies got together, they could do that stuff if they all weren't being enforced by antitrust law and things like that, right? But if they were to pool all of the miners they owned and it was, you know, I think it would be, I don't even know, probably 51% yeah, of 400 billion market cap against a lot of computers, right? So, I mean, we could not do any of that. Our transactions are not even... Point zero 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 whatever percent of of the network. So I mean, 
that it does not apply to people like us. So, so a bad actor isn't somebody you know who you know you hear a lot of you know you hear a lot of people in Congress saying you know well you know crypto is going to cause you know an easier way for criminals to you know conduct their business and, and you know acquire things. We're, we're not talking as far as bad actors of uh, the actions that people were. Are taking or going to do with you know the the money where we're talking more preventing a fraudulent transaction it sounds like yeah so with the transparency of the blockchain and you know i want to execute this transaction uh it has to be proved you know by millions or hundreds of thousands of yeah. computers which you know once they come to consensus and you're relying on um you know, the fact that you're not going to have that many people make a mistake or overlook something and allow some kind of fraudulent transaction acquiring 10 Bitcoin for a dollar. Exactly. Yeah. Bad actors in, in crypto were referring to computer science in general. Like, they, you got to remember, it's there's all this crypto bros and all this media and all this other stuff. But, but really, this is uh, fundamentally uh, computer science. We're building the equivalent of rocket ships here, blockchains that are worth trillions of dollars in the future, most likely. Uh, well, it's worth a trillion today if you look at the entire space. And then the last piece to understand the blockchain, you know, we've covered encryption or security. We've covered the difference between network structures and why it's better. But finally, we have consensus in, in that. And that's really the last kind of pillar of blockchain, what makes it so powerful is in a monolithic structure, we go back to that Venmo example, and this this or the PayPal example even that I've dealt with, right? I consented to using PayPal to accept customer payments, and there's those transactions. They seem fast, they're seamless, etc. You have that social issue where you know the company doesn't like the way we're doing things, and they hold all of our money, and costs us a lot of pain. But also for those transactions to go through, the consensus of that system or the agreeing of yeah, that's a credible transaction. It is very simple. It is vendor, customer, vendor puts in the amount owed, customer meets the amount, transaction goes through, they take their 2% for reaching consensus. 2% for reaching consensus and, and securing the this payment. Is PayPal. That's PayPal. That's yeah. Web 2.0. That's how it works, right? Sometimes 3%, plus your credit card fee. I'm not 5% if you use Amex. 5%, right? That's a lot. Especially if you're talking about a thousand, ten thousand, hundred thousand dollars a month, let's say in a business, it's a lot of money. Sure. In Web three or blockchain, these distributed, you know, platforms here, our networks, consensus is reached by a set number of computers. So those miners, you know, in Bitcoin specifically, they use a consensus consensus method called proof of work. It's old and outdated, but it is very effective. You can participate in the network, as you and I have, as people that just buy the token. But you could also be a miner. And what miners do is they have computers plugged into the wall. Those are called ASICs. They're uh, graphic processing units or GPUs. Same thing you use for your computer, probably what's in your phone listening to the cast now, right? Those GPUs are built to just solve really difficult math problems or cryptographic problems. Mm -hmm. 
cryptography is why this place is or this space is called crypto. It is the root of blockchain. So these miners go in in that block, that 15 second block, they have to solve like they meaning a bunch of different computers. They get randomly selected to solve the cryptography as the blocks uh, close to approve those transactions. And if they all come to the same consensus, they all say, yo, that amount of Bitcoin's correct. That price is correct. That wallet's correct. They have a bunch of these different points. They all come to a conclusion that's a proper transaction. It's closed in the block and then it's published on the chain. Now, the reason why I'll be calling it real quick in the blockchain, once consensus is met, the previous 15 second block is already closed. There's a block ID in that block, right? It's a block number. Every block is published and every we know every block number. The next block only exists because of the previous block. And that's why it's a chain. So block open, close, block open, close. And then over time, you can envision just these blocks turning into a big chain of mm -hmm. random transactions, but they're all encrypted blocks. The consensus mechanism is infinitely more scalable. The more nodes on the network it makes it more secure because Sorry, a node. node is the computer. Yes. The participant in that network. That's another word for a participating computer to be a node. Um, as the network gets more nodes, the randomness, that's what makes software more secure. The more random something is selected or chosen, it makes it more secure, harder to predict for the bad actors, right? So the more nodes, the more random, the, the more random selection of nodes that actually reach consensus and so on. So the network gets stronger and better the more people that play in it. And that is what makes blockchain that profound. It's this exponential growth curve. The more nodes makes it more secure, makes it more valuable, the more nodes, and then it keeps growing. And I presume there's nobody taking a two to five percent fee. That's a thing bring that back up. Yeah, that was a great point. Yeah, Bitcoin will charge you, you know, and it's slow and expensive. If you think about it, we could get into so many different projects that are cheaper, better, etc. But Bitcoin at most will take 0.01%, 0.02% in, in fees to pay the miners for reaching that consensus. Uh, significantly cheaper than what we're used to now. So if we look at PayPal, when we compare that to uh, some kind of blockchain application that serves a similar function, we feel that it's more secure, it is more efficient. It is and cheaper. Yeah, we're knocking out the middleman. Exactly, we're knocking out the middleman. We're not being governed by some large company that has problems with how we want to use the software, how we want to use, how we want to live our life. We have more liberty, and we spend less money using it. And we're also supporting other, you know, inhabitants of this earth. You know, the money's going to another human usually um who could use the money most likely or will contribute to the economy in some way versus just lining you know the the wealthiest of the wealthiest pockets and and growing their business for them um they've solved all of our problems but they've they've taken quite the sizable cut from our efforts and it's you know we only see those central tensions growing over time we see these issues becoming more pressing than they were 10 years ago. And that is a trend that blockchain is going to be the answer. And 
is is blockchain would it be accurate to say that that is you know absolutely one of the fundamental principles of of all what will be web three yeah i think uh, i'm very confident that 10 15 years from now on chain online the way we used to say online for example like mm -hmm. on hyphen line and then people would mess it up not understanding what online was that's how on chain will become everything in the future will be on chain because for the reasons we've discussed in this episode on chain is a lot better than online but there are many chains correct it's not just oh, one sorry. chain that all of these different web three projects and assets access you know they might have their own absolutely so there's different speeds with which transactions can be done and that's you know where you talk about all the exciting things yes other uh i always say companies but uh we'll break down that down yeah, yeah yeah absolutely yeah i did uh there's an infinite amount that could be generated all these blockchains are public so if I was a really smart, motivated developer, I could, you know, well, we can make an episode about this, but, you know, we can fork a chain, which just means copy it. Mm -hmm. Dogecoin is a copy of Bitcoin. A lot of people don't know that. It's just a fork. We pick the block number or some developer picked the block number, literally copy pasted Bitcoin's code, called it Dogecoin, took a picture of a Cordy, put it in on the website in the white paper, called it a meme. And, uh, it's now worth, you know, $20 billion. And it's just a copy of Bitcoin. A lot to unpack there. There's a couple sentences. Yeah, there's a lot. We'd love to probably save that for another episode. And, and, uh, sure. Well, the one thing we just want to understand, you know, a blockchain is the next iteration of the internet. It is better than, um, you know, traditional networks that we're used to in Web2. And there is an infinite amount that could be created, infinite. And the more participants you have on a, on a blockchain, the more valuable and secure and better it becomes over time. So as I, as I hear it, you know, on kind of web two, you know, I'm logging into monolithic structures, uh, accounts, it's out of my control. My, you know, user history, all of that is owned by some company, you know, some other centralized um, structure. And, you know, there's things that are hacked, you know, sometimes information is leaked, you know, you've got these problems. It can be expensive. Mm -hmm. You know, we use credit cards, we use things like PayPal, um, Web3. Uh, going on chain, you know, we're getting away from this monolithic structure to the distributed network. We've got millions of people um, working together. The transactions are coming in. We feel secure because we've got so many people, so many nodes, I think, that are you know, computing and, and, and saying, yes, you know, this, this transaction is correct. Yep. Um, there's no middleman. It's less expensive. Uh, it's private. Yet there's accountability because even though it's private and anonymous, we forever uh, lock this into the chain and can go back and, and see that. You know, we don't worry about 
data being deleted, you know, after six months, I mean, it's, it's there. You're killing me. Yeah. I feel like we can switch roles now. I feel like you feel like you learned. No, I don't know about that. <laughs> no, it's perfect. Yeah, absolutely. That is, that is the, those are the core tenets of blockchain. Okay. You got a good grasp. Yeah. So I, you know, aside from financial transactions, I mean, is there any quick hits you can provide on why blockchain is cool and, you know, what it might do for, I know everything's somewhat, you know, there's financial components, you know, to it, but, you know, we've really only talked about transactions and correct. Yeah. Conducting business. Is there other benefits? I mean, is there, you know, yeah, certainly. Does it help um, gain? Does it help? Uh, I'm going to take it to that fundamental level again. When we talk about the internet of value and exchanging value, most people think of dollars, uh-huh. right? That's what we've been talking about the past 30, 40 minutes is dollars. But um, it could also be just valuable information, for example, a vote. Like, uh-huh. I right now, there's a monolithic structure for voting. I got to go in to a ballot yeah. ballot box. It's all owned by the government, et cetera. And then I have to physically drive there and all this other stuff where in blockchain, since it's encrypted and I have this wallet ID, let's say in the future, we know that there's at least one wallet that the government gives us and that's tied to our identity. So there's it's invaluable. You cannot deny that my federally issued wallet, no different than my social security number, that is me. Right. So if somebody shows up with a wallet, you know, that's their social security number. That's their. Right now they show up with a physical wallet yeah. and they show their ID. Yeah. Right. I'm saying in the future, you wouldn't have to drive anywhere. You could a transaction on blockchain could be you submitting a vote for a candidate. That's what, tied what, what if I had your wallet and I vote as you? You would need to know my seed phrase and you would need to you know, be able to take all of my crypto in addition to cast a vote. So we're talking about a serious offense or are you just being completely, uh, is, we're talking about theft of password. Correct. Well, yeah. No, no different than someone stealing your identity and putting in a vote. Now those, yeah. those, uh, consequences exist. So it's hard to steal the password. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you'd have to, stumble upon someone that wrote it down or you'd have to hold them at gunpoint and get it from them or something very nefarious to yeah, access. I, mean, I, I think of my father, you know, God bless him. He calls me once a week, you know, trying to get password help and hmm. can't log into this or, you know, something's gone awry. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't even imagine him, you know, tasked with the responsibility of, <laughs> yeah, you know, keeping his password straight, you know, then, um, but perhaps, you know, is that where we might see, you know, what sometimes you call layer two, you know, some technology that comes about that'll probably help people with that kind of management of the password and security. Yeah, key key management is definitely going to be one of the things that uh, needs work and we need better solutions for this to be massively adopted because I totally agree. There's just going to be a segment of the population that has no hope uh, yeah. you know, properly managing their keys or passwords for, for blockchain. Yeah. But in, in this example, you know, just submitting a vote that is valuable. That could be on the chain. It could be, um, 
distributed no different, you know, because it's on chain um, than, than a financial transaction. And that would be an exchange of value between a constituent and their state nations. So there's a lot of different things that are valuable that if on chain can make our lives uh, a lot more convenient and more secure in general. So with that, we thank you guys for, for tuning in. Hopefully you learned something and you can uh, talk about some of the, the fundamental exciting things uh, regarding blockchain, just like Steve did. And we thank you for, for coming in and, and listening. Thank you. We'll see you next time. It's your boy, JT Knows Things, and I'm back to give you those sexy disclaimers. Everything in this cast should not be interpreted cannot be interpreted as financial advice, legal advice, accounting advice, and pretty much any other advice that you may or may not be gleaning from the episode. We are simply documenting all of our research for our, an educational purpose only. We thank you so much for tuning in and your support. And until next time, see ya.